0: Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer today and then following that, we're going to have scripture reading and uh, we'll continue with worship and song and then the study of the word today. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and I, I just thank you that, Lord, we can come to you in prayer. We know that you hear us, that you are prayer-hearing and answering God, that, Lord Jesus, you told us, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. Father, help us to not be negligent as we sing songs and are reminded many times, so many times the reason we don't receive is because we don't ask. And then even as James says, sometimes we ask, but we don't do it in faith. Give us faith, Holy Spirit. Pray for our brother Eric as he heads overseas, going to be right on the edge of great conflict, pray that you would protect him, give him wisdom as he deals with people who have lost all their material goods and perhaps family members, and just pray that you would give him and the other pastors that will be there your wisdom and power to minister to these hurting people. Uh, Lord, I pray as well that you would be with Matt's mother Lord, with the diagnosis with the return of cancer, that, Father, you would just be with her, with with Matt's dad, with Matt's family, Matt's brother, his entire family. You Give them wisdom during this time and grace that, Lord, you would heal Ellen, uh, raise her up if that is in your will. We entrust her to you. We thank you for your, your goodness to her through this long battle that she has faced. And, Lord, just her steadfast testimony, as well as the whole family. Be with them, we pray. Bless us as we worship you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13. We got some ground to cover this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to 10. Uh, Here today, we've been in this section of the book of Romans now for some time. Um, I had thought I would finish it with it. This Sunday, But we're going to be in it one more Sunday. Uh, We'll come back one more time to finish up. Although we are adding verses to where we have been. We have been just stopping at verse 7. Today we add verses 8, 9, and 10. And so, if you will recall, he began this section, the Apostle Paul began it, by telling us, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And so we've been talking about authority. We've been talking about submission that the Christian's default setting is we're submissive, that God desires us to be submissive. You will remember what Samuel said to Saul. He said, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Um, God does not want His children, His people, to be a rebellious people. He wants us to be submissive. So he says, let every person be subject ...to the governing authorities. When we get to verse 5, he is beginning to bring his concluding arguments into this picture... ...and he's telling us why. He says, therefore, therefore, one must be in subjection. Must be submissive. Why? Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience... For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. They attend to this very thing. So then he says in verse 7, Pay to all what is owed to them. And then he breaks it out. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom... Revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another fulfills the law. For all of the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment is summed up in this word You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills the law. We often just think of those verses as referring to the Mosaic law, it's not, it's not about the law. In other words, if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we don't even need to know what's on the statute books. Why? It's covered. Foundational law to all law, to all human law. You can move from here to any culture, anywhere on the planet, that is governed under a different set of civil codes. And essentially, if you fulfill... The royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You will be fulfilling the law of that land. Because all law that is good is summed up in those six. It's very important we understand as we go into the study this morning. We think about what we are told here in this context. As we begin this morning, let's just join together our hearts for a moment at the throne of grace. Father, we come before you today. Holy Spirit, we implore you, Lord Jesus Christ, we we ask your aid. That as we study today, Lord, even as we think about Jesus, how you walked on earth and how you submitted, how at times you did not submit. That Lord, we would understand why you did what you did. And that, Father, we, your children, could walk in obedience to Christ in fulfilling the law, the greatest law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless us in your word for a few moments this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's where we're going today. We're going to talk about the reason that we submit As you remember, he began the chapter by saying, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then when we get to this verse, in verse 5, he says, therefore, and he gives us two reasons that we submit. We submit to avoid God's wrath, and we submit from conscience. We'll talk about those two things this morning. Then we're also going to look at verses 8 to 10, and we're going to talk about the foundation of all law, which is the law of God the law which is written on our hearts, as well as codified in the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. But that the commandments that were given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai become a summary statement of all law, of all law that is good. And so it is very safe, as I already said, that we can live as we will see, even as Jesus said, to Peter, and then Peter says in 1 Peter, he says, live as a free man. Live as a free man. You are not under anybody's constraints. You are free, but don't use your freedom as a cloak for covetousness or as a cloak for sin. Just fulfill the law, the law of God, and you are safe. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the foundation of all law, we'll look at that this morning. So therefore, he says, to avoid incurring God's wrath, we are to submit. He also says we are to submit out of conscience. What do these two things mean? We'll look at that here for the first few minutes in our message. Therefore, he says to avoid God's wrath. What does he mean by that? Does he mean... That if you disobey a civil law, you are placing yourself under the wrath of God eternally. That you will go to hell. What does he mean by this? That we are to avoid God's wrath by submitting to government. He is not talking about God's eternal wrath here. He is rather talking about the wrath that God administers through the sword of the civil authority. We talked about this briefly last week, but if you look just up one verse, if you look in verse 4 of chapter 13, he says of the governing authority, he says, he is God's servant for your good. Now, if you do wrong, then be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's servant. And what does he do? He is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. So what he is saying there when he says that we do this, we submit in order to avoid God's wrath, what he's saying is God's wrath is administered through the human agency of the Justice Department, through through the police, through the courts, through prison systems. And when I disobey the law and I find myself in disobedience to the law of my land, I will incur a civil punishment. But that civil punishment is God's wrath because the authority bears God's sword. So he's not talking about eternal wrath for the believer. He is rather talking about wrath here that God administers through civil authorities. That's the context of what he's saying. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says something very similar. Now, remember if you were awake when Keith was doing scripture reading, okay? And you followed that, when Keith read the scripture this morning, it was a conversation between Jesus and who? Peter. This is Oh, my screen ain't on. Hold on a second. This is Peter. And I want you to see how Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, says in another way, but in really just you can see that when Peter is writing this, the Holy Spirit is reminding him of the day he went fishing and caught a fish to pay his taxes. Okay, that's the context here. So Peter says almost the very same thing as what Paul has told us. He says, submit to every human authority. Why? Because of the Lord. Whether to the emperor, who is the supreme authority, or to a governor, as those who are sent out by him to punish, they bear the sword, who punish those who do what? Evil, remember in chapter 13 of Romans, we're talking about good and evil all the time here. They punish those who do evil and they praise. Notice there again, punish and praise. Very same things we talked about as we were looking in Romans 13 a couple of weeks ago. That that's the function of the government. It's to punish evil and to praise or incentivize what is good. Praise those who do good. Then he says this. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by what? Doing good. As God's slaves. Live as free people. But don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. And then he says almost the same thing as we see in Romans 13 when he breaks this out. He says, honor everyone. He says, love the brotherhood. He says, fear God. And he says, honor the emperor. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit is speaking parallel in 1 Peter chapter 2 to what Paul has already said and says in different wording, but in almost the identical message. And then notice this. He says this, for what credit is there? If you sin, you break the law, you sin, And you get punished, and you endure it. But, notice this, because this is where we've been going continually in this conversation. But, when you do what is good and you suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. He says something similar in chapter 4. None of you should suffer as a what? Lawbreaker, murderer, thief, evildoer, a meddler. What's a meddler? But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed. But he should glorify God because he has that name. So we're talking about good and evil again, and we're talking about submission. We're talking about the why and the wherefore. So he says, we submit to avoid the wrath of God meted out by the agency of human authorities, by the sword. So he says, you know, it's it's not really commendable if you go to prison as a thief and you endure it well. That's not really commendable. But if you go to prison because you're a Christian... That's a different matter. It's a completely different matter. So, first of all, to avoid wrath. Secondly, therefore, we also submit to governing authorities for conscience. Now, what is conscience? Let's think about conscience for a minute this morning. Let's break it out into two words. The word is conscience. Con is a prefix from the Greek language, and it means with or alongside, or let's say parallel, not perpendicular, but parallel, It's parallel, something that is alongside. What does the word science mean? Knowledge, right? That's just the word science. The word science is knowledge. So when we talk about conscience, we're talking about a concept a word that is trying to explain something that happens inside of us. It's talking about a knowledge that you have, that I have that is parallel to me or alongside me. My dog don't have this. Sometimes I wonder when I come home, but he does not have a conscience. You do? The conscience, there are two meanings of this word in the scripture. First of all, it is a mental or a spiritual faculty in man, in human beings. It does one of two things it passes judgment on our actions and motives, and it then either condemns or excuses what we have done and why we did it now there's two th- there's a couple things that are important in this understanding one is your conscience is a spiritual faculty it's not identical to the holy spirit because everybody has it not just christians it's knowledge that god is placed in human beings as a part of being a part of the image of god and in this faculty there is an ability We're knowledge outside of you, alongside of you. And a lot of times we want to shut this voice up, but it just keeps speaking. It's a knowledge that passes judgment. And it passes judgment on two things, both what we did and why we did it. Have you ever noticed that? It not only passes judgment to you and in your mind on what you did. It also passes judgment on why you did it. And then it either condemns it or it excuses it. It either condemns or excuses what we did and why we did it. He's saying here that we obey the governing authorities out of conscience. Because when we disobey, what happens? We hear a voice that is condemning us. And we a lot of times try to excuse ourselves and justify ourselves, but nevertheless it just keeps speaking to us. And so he says out of conscience we obey. But that's not the only meaning of this word in the scripture. It's an important meaning. What Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 17 really gives the flow of what he's talking about here. Jesus tells Peter, you are free, but you pay your taxes. And he says so, so you won't offend So you won't offend. Now he's not just saying there, so you don't offend your own conscience. He's talking about what? So you don't offend in society. So that you build a good testimony. And so what he's saying here when he says you pay your taxes, you honor who you should honor, you fear who you should fear, he's not only saying so you feel good and you can sleep at night, he's saying because I want you to have a good testimony so you do not offend your neighbor. This is a very important part of what is said here by Paul in Romans 13. It's like talking about our testimony. And so let me show you another place where he uses the word conscience and he uses it specifically about your testimony. Notice what is said in 1 Corinthians 10. Now that's a little bit small, but I had a bunch of screens. In 1 Corinthians 10, he is bringing to a close a discussion about meat sacrificed to idols and whether or not a Christian should eat it. He's talking about Christian liberty. He gives some concluding arguments and explanations on the subject. And he says to the believer, eat everything that is sold in the meat market. Ask no questions for conscience sake for conscience sake, don't ask where that meat came from. You're invited to a friend's house. He is saying to believers in that time, don't ask where it came from, just eat it. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything that's in it. You're good. He made it. But then he says this. If one of the unbelievers in your town invites you over and you want to go, then eat everything that is set before you. But don't raise questions of conscience. Don't ask him where he got that meat. But if the man says to you, if the unbeliever says to you, this is food that was offered to an idol. Now you know where it came from, and so does he, and he knows what? He knows you know where it came from. So you're an unbeliever's house and the unbeliever sets a stake in front of you, and he doesn't say where it came from, man, eat it and enjoy it. But if you're in the unbeliever's house, and he sets a stake in front of you that he bought at the meat market of the idol, what does he say you should do? Don't eat it. Why? Out of consideration for the one who told you, and for conscience sake. I don't mean your own conscience. I mean the other person's conscience. And then you ask a question. Well, why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? Right? I'm free. We love our freedom in America. I'm free. Why is my freedom judged by what will offend another person's conscience? Notice what he says. If I partake with thanks, why am I then slandered? Because of something that I give thanks for. Therefore, I love this verse. This is a great verse. But think of the context of what he's saying. Therefore, whether or not you eat or drink, whatever you do, everything you do is for God's glory. It's not for you. It's for God. So he said, give no offense. Give no offense to the Jew or the Greek or the church of God. Just as I, Paul says, try to please God. All people, in all things, I am not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so what? So they may be saved. I'll just tell you this. It would be a horrible thing to stand in the judgment seat of Christ and find out somebody did not become a Christian because you routinely disobeyed governing authorities. That would be a horrible thing to find out. What he is telling us here is if we really want to do everything to the glory of God, then what I do is not about me and what I like and what I want. It is about God and his glory. And if my actions undermine my testimony and I destroy another man's conscience about Christ, woe is me. And so what is he saying here? pay your taxes, not just so that you can sleep at night, so that when your neighbor looks at you, he says that's how a Christian lives. That's what he's getting at here. Let's continue along. I think this helps us then also understand Romans 12 and the heaping coals of fire. Remember what he said in Romans chapter 12? He said, when you do good and somebody does wrong to you, you heap coals of fire on his head. What do you do? You bother his conscience. And so what he's saying is, why do you pay your taxes? So hopefully the IRS feels bad. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. But why do you pay your taxes? In doing it, in obeying law, in submitting as a Christian... Part of what we are doing is instructing the conscience of our neighbor, not just our own. You know, it's been interesting with all the stuff going on in the Ukraine and in Russia. I've been reading a book about the fall of the Soviet Union. Now, I was a young adult, young married man when when the Soviet Union went down, and I watched the news and you know, get the little snippet of what was going on, didn't think a whole lot deeper of it, except that, woohoo, we're not going to all get nuked. I wanted to know more. I started reading, and it's been really intriguing. I've been reading a lot about Mikhail Gorbachev and what led up to his desire for knot and perestroika and all the different things that brought down the Soviet Union and how that happened. And in reading it, there's been some things that were really intriguing, We'll talk a little bit about some of this next week, too, talking about taxes and how tax structure can be so stupid. In the Soviet Union, when Gorbachev was a young man, Gorbachev came up through the ranks. He he was a peasant, lived on the border of Ukraine. His father fought in the Second World War. His grandpa and his wife's grandpa... Both went to the gulag, one for stealing grain and one for just saying something stupid in the public meeting. One of those grandpas died in the gulag. The other one lived through it. His grandpa only talked to Mikhail about the occurrence one time. He had most of the bones broken in his body when they beat him, trying to get confessions out of him. When he wouldn't talk, they took Mikhail Gorbachev's grandpa and they tied him, bound him in a sheepskin and lowered him into a vat of water, soaked the sheepskin, and then put him on an oven to cook. He survived it. But as a little boy, Mikhail Gorbachev heard that story and it instructed him about injustice. In the tax structure under Stalin when Mikhail was a little boy, if you were a peasant, you had to pay taxes. One was a milk tax. Most peasants didn't have cows. But you had to pay a milk tax. So you either had to steal, barter, or figure out a way to get milk from somebody else to pay your tax because it had to be paid in milk to the commune. Also, if you had fruit trees in your yard, there was a percentage. It was like 80% of the fruit on the fruit tree was owned by the collective. 20% was yours. That 80% was your annual tax. If you got an early frost and you lost all your fruit, you didn't get your 20%, but you still had to pay your 80% in apples. You know what that policy caused everybody to do? Everybody cut down their fruit trees. And all of a sudden there was no fruit in Russia. Think about that, think of the stupidity. We'll talk about taxes next week. That's why we're gonna go one week longer on this, because I wanna talk a lot about taxes to you. But Gorbachev talks about conscience, and I want to read something here that was really intriguing to me. On August 21st, for 21st in 1968, the Russian troops moved into Czechoslovakia. I was two years old then, but some of you remember that. Gorbachev at that time was a party boss down by the Ukraine in a region called Stavropol. He oversaw the breadbasket of Russia where they raised most of their wheat. When this happened, they got a directive from party officials that they were supposed to get up in town and praise the party for invading Czechoslovakia. And this is what Gorbachev said to that. He said, I fully and entirely approved of the decision. This is what he said in his speech. I fully and entirely approved the decisive and timely measures taken by the Politburo. But then he said this, But my conscience bothered me. I kept wondering whether the action was right. And then he talks about just the system. And he says this, The system carefully skimmed the cream. Those chosen knew they had to play by the rules of the game. They had to pass through the party separator that turned cream into butter. Those who made it to the top were, for the most part, the thick-skinned ones. Those who didn't worry much about the moral meaning of their actions. Those whose consciences were buried very deep. I just bring that up for a couple of reasons. One, God is at work in governing authorities in their conscience. And the church of Jesus Christ has a responsibility to instruct the conscience of the community and of society and of governing authorities. Many people in governing authorities have seared their conscience. That's why they got where they are. But God has called us to a responsibility whereby we heap coals of fire on those heads by the way we do good when evil is done to us. Now, that brings us back around to a thought. He says here, pay to everyone what you owe. Right? Look at the verse. Verse 7. Pay to everyone what is owed to them. And then he delineates delineates out what that is. Taxes, revenue, fear, honor. And then he says, owe no one anything except what? To love him. Most times I've heard that verse preached on. I've heard it preached on where somebody said something like this. If you're a Christian, it's wrong for you to borrow money. That, most times, that's kind of the interpretation. And then I've heard people dance on it a little bit and say, well, it's okay to borrow money to buy a house or something like that. But, you know, don't take a credit card or things like that. That's not the context at all. That verse is not talking about your personal finance. And the way you operate. Although we can make some applications. The apostle Paul is alluding. Specifically here. In those two statements. Pay to everyone what you owe. Owe no one anything but to love him. He is alluding specifically. To something that our savior said. When he was asked. About taxes. And Jesus took out a coin. Out of his pocket. I guess I don't have any coins. I'm going to take one out. And he said to the guys who were asking him the question, whose picture is on the coin? Caesar's. And Jesus said what? Pay to Caesar what is Caesar. But what? Pay to God what is God's. This is, exact, this, this is an exact commentary where he is going here. He is saying to us, pay to everyone what you owe. You owe to Caesar what is Caesar's. You owe to God what is God's. You owe obedience to God. He is the greater authority. And so all of this conversation is set in that immediate context. So let's go. So what is love? Love is the fulfillment of the law. Pay what you owe. What do you owe to your neighbor? Love him. If you love him, you won't steal gas out of his barrel. Right? If you love him, you won't gossip about him. If you love him, you won't hate him and you won't murder him. So love is the fulfillment of the law. And this brings us right back to this is the fundamental basis of all human law. I think that you could safely say that every ethical dilemma that a person faces is found in the second half of the Decalogue. Obey authority. Children, obey your parents. Don't steal. All the way down to don't covet. So what is the love? It is the fulfillment of the law. It's not just a feeling. Love is not just a a feeling. It is a specific fulfillment of obedience to God based on his commandments. And if I say to you, I love you, and I steal from you, my actions prove my lie. So what is love? It's a fulfillment of the law. So what is law? Now here, this is important again. All human law, to be good and not evil, must find its basis in God's foundational law as revealed in God's written law, either as written on our heart or as written in his word. So, if society says it's okay to do something that is in direct opposition To God's law, then what is good and what is evil? What is good is what God has said, not what man says. What man says is only good if it lines up with what God has said. It's very important we understand that. Back to conscience. So what do I do when my conscience won't let me give what is demanded? Think about conscience and think about the importance of conscience. He said, What? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's the coin. But give to God what is God's. When conscience dictates that it is wrong, then what must I obey? God. We keep stressing this because I think it is important. Let me give you some illustrations of it. One, think would be about Martin Luther. Martin Luther is at the Diet of Worms. He doesn't know it, but he's changing the world. Doesn't mean he's eating worms, by the way. When I say the Diet of Worms, you know, it's kind of like the Atkins diet. Look at this. Who does he direct his statement to? Martin Luther is not talking to other Christians here, primarily. He's talking to who? Civil authority. He says, your imperial majesty and your lordships, you want a simple answer? My conscience is captive to what? What you want me to do? No. My conscience is captive to God's word. I cannot, I will not recant anything. Why? Because if I act against my conscience, it is not safe and it is not open to me. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther gets in trouble and changes the world, not because he was just trying to change the church, he gets up against who? The emperor the Emperor, and his conscience, and this is why this is important when we think about conscience. You live with your conscience when you go to bed at night. So do I. But your conscience is not bound or subservient to the dictate of every human being. Although as we already demonstrated, we have a responsibility to not offend. So that God can save our neighbor. But ultimately, I don't give to Caesar what is God's. I give to God what is God's. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Think with me for a minute. What did Jesus get crucified for? Doing good. But Jesus got crucified. He got in trouble with people for what? Don't make any mistake of this. Civil disobedience. Just take your Bible and read it sometime. Read the Gospels. Jesus is dealing with people who have taken God's law, one commandment, honor and obey, rest on the Sabbath. The regulatory state of Jesus' day has added to that all kinds of things. And the civil authorities say, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And none of it lines up with the original foundational commandment given by God. It's all additions, man-made tradition. Jesus sees a man with a withered hand. It's on the Sabbath. Jesus specifically calls that man to himself and heals him in front of the governing authorities. And they are ticked off, and in Mark chapter 4, it says, because of what he did, they are seeking a way to kill him. Why? He looks at those people and he says to them this. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? If your donkey falls in a pit on the Sabbath, do you go and get it out? And he heals the man. Now think of this. All Jesus had to do was tell the man with the withered hand, you've had this all your life. Give me 24 hours. We'll take care of it tomorrow. Right? Right? He could have submitted. Jesus could have willingly submitted to the regulation of the governing authorities and simply said, I know we're not allowed to pluck grain on the Sabbath, so don't do it, guys. But he commends them for it. The reason Jesus was crucified was because he disobeyed authority that opposed God. If he had just gone along and done what he was told in those matters, he would have never got in trouble. It was those issues that brought his ministry to a head. Things like the Sabbath, clean and unclean, Jesus' belligerent against unjust rulers and unjust laws were the main reasons he was at odds with both civil and religious rulers of his day. Now, why do I bring that up? We'll go deeper into it next week. Talk about it a little further. But when we think about these things, once again, it is fundamentally important. And I don't... This is very important to me. And I'm just going to make it a clear statement. And I'll be about done to shut up it is very important to me that you understand the default setting of the Christian is to submit and to obey. If I hear that you are being an anarchist or a revolutionary, I'm not happy. We're going to have a talk. But as it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you get in trouble for being a Christian, praise God. Praise God. When I was a little kid, I was about five years old. In a church that I was in, you know, I'm five years old, so all this is being processed. I don't even know how it all turned out. There was a young woman. She was a single mother. She had three kids that were in the Christian school where I attended. She was a UPS driver. On her delivery route, she had an adult pornography store one of those nasty places she was expected by the store and by her boss to take the goods in when she delivered she did the first time and she got an education she went to her boss and she simply said you know I, I I'm not gonna not deliver this stuff I will deliver it they bought it it's theirs it's on my route But what I would like to do is work out some kind of deal with you to where I just simply knock on the door. They meet me there. I give it to them. I don't want to go in for my conscience. I don't want to deal with that. She lost her job. She went to court. I was five. I don't even remember what happened. But I remember she lost her job. Why? Why? She disobeyed the authority that was over her. But why did she do it? Her conscience. Because she said, I can't go in there. I don't want that garbage in my mind. There are things that are more important to me than my job. If it's going to cost me my job, it cost me my job. God will still provide. He's still Jehovah Jireh. And I remember a little kid. Even though I don't know how it turned out. I remember looking up at that woman and thinking, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. So what I'm saying today is don't go out and get in trouble because you're a bonehead. But if you get in trouble because you're a Christian, praise God, do what is right. That's what this is all about. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior who in just such a perfect way modeled to us submission, obedience, and yet firmness. An unwillingness to bend, a a willingness to stand for principle, a a willingness to, to even be a recipient of the sword, God's wrath, which came upon Jesus. Because of right. Oh Lord, may we have that same conviction as your children. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would
1: you stand together as we sing our closing song? i yeah. yeah. you for this morning. We thank you for the truth. Lord, we pray that uh, that others would see you through our obedience, through our obedience to follow you, through our obedience to follow the Holy Spirit in, inside of us to, to do what is right. Lord, you have asked us to do that. You require us to do that. Lord, help us. Help us to be obedient to you and your word. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.